Good morning. Welcome. I'm so glad to be with you in this time of worship. I am so appreciative of our online connection and thank you for joining us. I'm excited about our continued journey in the teaching series forward as we study from the gospel of Mark, the, the full ministry and life of Jesus leading up to his his suffering, his death, and the resurrection. And so I welcome you today to focus with me on the death and the resurrection of our Lord as we continue our study to chapter 14. This week, our focus will be upon the events leading up to and including the crucifixion of our Lord. Next week, we, we conclude this entire study in a celebration of the resurrection. So I'm so grateful to have journeyed through the gospel of Mark with you that actually concludes on resurrection day. But for this moment, we enter into chapter 14 where we discover steps that lead us to an experience of, of the suffering and the crucifixion of our Lord. I understand that, that these verses that describe the suffering of our Lord can, can at times feel overwhelming, but I ask you to lean into the scriptures as we understand how our lives should respond to the truth of Jesus, even in these moments of suffering. Chapter 14 marks what has been noted as the passion narratives. The word passion indicates suffering, and more specifically, Jesus' willingness to suffer in obedience to the Father and in response to our need for the forgiveness of sin and for new life. And so I welcome you into this focus upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we, we lean into those verses that truly describe his, his journey to the cross. And I ask you to allow the scriptures to guide you on this journey so that we can better see Jesus for who he is in his fullness. And this includes his suffering and his death and his, his resurrection. In 2004, Mel Gibson released the movie, The Passion of the Christ. He casted Jim Caviezel as Jesus. And then the director warned Caviezel that this movie might actually uh, hinder his future career. The emphasis was simply to remind the actor that the storyline and, and the person of Jesus and his, his death was so controversial in his time that that this may be a, a casted role that would hurt the actor's career. Well, this is what Cavizio responded to Gibson over concerning that warning. This is what he said. The awards, uh, the Hall of Fame of all of those actors here on earth, that really doesn't matter. Cavizio said, my reward will come in heaven. Jesus is as controversial now as he's ever been. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. We have to give up our names and our reputations and our desires, and we need to learn to live and speak the truth of Jesus. Yes, this actor who is a Christian, obviously, and loves, loves the Lord and follows him, took his career in one hand and cast it aside so that he, in his own words, could honor his Christ by fulfilling this role. I love that statement. Yeah, Jesus is just as controversial today as he was 2,000 years ago, meaning that Jesus, who he is, becomes the winnowing hand that separates those who follow Jesus and those who reject him. 
There must be one or the other. And this becomes so apparent as we take these steps to the cross to learn how Jesus' life and his teachings uh, caused many to turn away from him and yet caused many to cling to him. So allow the, the controversial impact Jesus has always had upon this broken world to be the winnowing hand to help you to discern. Have you turned away from Christ or are you truly following him? So let's journey with Jesus to the cross so that we might better respond to who he is as God's son, as God in the flesh, and as one who come and has come to die for our sins. So we're going to walk through chapters 14 and 15 by taking steps to the cross. Step number one, the plan. Verse 14 opens, now the Passover and the unleavened bread feast were two days away, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking Jesus that they might seize him by stealth, by secrecy, and then kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now let's pause here, and I'd like to introduce to you the first step to the cross. This journey that we look at episodically all throughout chapter 14 that leads to the demonstration of Jesus' death on the cross in chapter 15. So these two chapters are pretty simply outlined. Chapter 14, steps to the cross. Chapter 15, the cross. And then later, chapter 16, the resurrection. But let's look at the steps to the cross, beginning with these two verses, verse 1 and 2 in chapter 14, that describes the plan. Now here, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priest, the temple authorities, if you will, were seeking by stealth to kill Jesus, but they decided not to do so in correlation to the Passover and the unleavened bread celebration that was just two days away. But I'd like for you to notice something here that I think is so powerful. Their strategy, their plot to kill Jesus actually became a powerful backdrop for God's plan. Jesus entered during the Passover celebration. This was a commemoration of when God in in the days of old uh, led his people out of the captivity of Egypt. And he instructed that every family of the Israelites would sacrifice an unblemished lamb so that the blood could be spread over the doorpost so that, so that the tenth uh, plague, the, the plague of death would pass over those who had spread the blood and they could be saved and, and rescued. And, and then in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24, instruction was given for Israel to continue this uh, Passover recognition for the rest of their days. And so what we have many, many years later here in Jerusalem with Jesus approaching the city for the last time is that very feast or celebration, the celebration of Passover, which actually commemorated into a week-long celebration known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now that we have the historical backdrop, here, here we find God's plan to bring into mankind at the moment of celebrating the Passover, the ultimate unblemished Lamb of God. Now, I hear those words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, as he announced, Behold the Lamb of God. And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, I must read these verses. This becomes a powerful demonstration of, of the death and the purpose of our Lord dying on the cross and then leading to his resurrection. But here's what we read in Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you. 
God, by your blood, purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests unto God. This becomes an amazing announcement that the Lamb of God, during the Passover celebration of recognizing when God allowed that last plague to pass over his own, that they might be redeemed, this celebration now points to God's ultimate plan to bring his son to be the lamb of God, the perfect lamb who would die for our sins. This becomes the plan. The first step to the cross becomes our reference to God's plan unfolding here at a specific time on the calendar in a specific place to a specific people, God's lamb of God. Jesus himself was presented. This becomes his plan. Now, as we read on into the narrative of chapter 14, we come to step two toward the cross, the praise. From the plan now to the praise. While Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, we don't know much of Simon the leper other than he certainly was one who was healed by our Lord and, and was certainly healed completely for now he is associating with many people. And they were reclining at the table and there came a woman with an alabaster vial. This is obviously named from the Gospel of John as Mary Magdalene. And she poured the vial over his head. But some were indignant. Now Luke and Matthew and John referenced that the disciples were indignant and specifically Judas was indignant because this perfume, this very expensive nard, uh, encased in an alabaster box, likely shipped in, imported, some say from as far away as India. And this nard taken from a, a flower, likely known and recognized in the Himalayas, was, was harvested and was sold as very expensive perfume in, encased in an alabaster box. And here, we're not sure from where this perfume came but she broke it open and poured it on our Lord's head. And the disciples said, no, this is wrong. That perfume alone would cost 300 denarii. One denarii is one day's wage. So the translation, this perfume cost as much as what one would make in an entire year. And so they became indignant with the one who poured the vial over our Lord's head to anoint him. But Jesus said, do not bother her. What she's done is, is highly valued. You'll, you'll always have the poor, but you'll not always have me. You see, the disciples and Judas had argued, I believe erroneously, that, or, or I should say superficially, that they thought the money that she had spent on the nard could be used to feed the poor. But they were not interested in some benevolent ministry. They were indignant at the expensiveness of the, of the perfume. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor. Me, you will not always have. She's prepared me for my burial. Do you see that in verse 8? Truly I say to you, verse 9, whenever the gospel is preached, wherever, her story will be told. This becomes a beautiful demonstration of the praise in the heart of those who really understood the redemption of our Lord. Now, we can't fully know if Mary Magdalene knew she was preparing Jesus for his coming death on the cross. But Jesus interpreted her activity as such. This anointing oil was a symbol of preparing him to go to that place where he would die for our sins. But Mary Magdalene had already received his healing and his touch and his forgiveness and his restoration. She recognized him as Lord and as Redeemer and gave him the praise he deserved and still deserves today. The second step to the cross from God's plan as, as Jesus, the Lamb of God, now to the praise that we must render to our Lord because we've received his forgiveness 
Render your praise unto him. He's worthy of all praise. And this was a part of the journey to the cross, a recognition of the honor and the glory Jesus deserves as son of God, son of man, lamb of God, he who has come to redeem the world. Now we keep reading in verse 10 and 11. Step three, we come to the problem. We've seen the plan and we've seen the praise from Mary Magdalene. Now we come to a problem. Verse 10 and 11, Judas Iscariot was the one of the 12 who had went off to the chief priest in order to betray him. So uh, Mark minimizes the transaction to Judas, but still brings the story in while allowing his, his narrative to move quickly. And now we're introduced uh, through Mark's narrative to Judas Iscariot, who, who received pay to deliver Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities. They were glad when they heard that Jesus was willing to betray him and promised to give him money, 30 pieces. Uh, and, and Judas then began seeking how to betray Jesus. The word began seeking is imperfect in verse 11, indicating that Jesus was, or Judas was very strategic in attempting to trap our Lord. But Jesus knew, obviously knew, uh, the other gospels indicate that Jesus understood it was Judas who would betray him. But we see a problem. Here comes the problem. The problem of man superimposing his will over Jesus. Uh, on a journey to the cross, step three through this narrative points us to a problem that becomes, uh, uh, evident in many of our lives where we superimpose our will over what we know Jesus desires for us. And this uh, becomes the reason Jesus went to the cross to free us from our own devices and to give us life and joy that can only come perfectly through him. But the problem was man superimposing his will over the identity and the purpose of Christ. Be careful that you not fall to your own will. Now let's keep moving more deeply into the narrative and we come to verses 12 through 26. This is a lengthier part of the narrative. And here we find the fourth step through the narrative leading to the cross, the presentation. Now we've, we've moved through those two days preliminary to the uh, Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And verse 12 opens up the narrative in that feast. On the first day of the Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, Jesus' disciples said to him, uh, where would you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And then Jesus sent two of the disciples and said, Hey, go into the city. When you see a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him into his house and then say, The teacher is asking where his room is, that he might eat the Passover with his disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepared for us. The disciples went out and came to the city and found the man and told him just what was said, and the room was prepared. When that evening had come, you see this from verse 17 through 21, uh, Jesus noted who would be the one that would betray him. Judas was no longer stealth in his betrayal of our Lord. But I love this movement into Jerusalem and to the Passover. Notice a phrase you should not miss in verse 14. Jesus said, tell the man that you find where my guest room is that I might eat Passover with the disciples. So there was a presentation being made of Jesus as he moved in to celebrate the Passover and then in that last supper would demonstrate through his own life, his resurrection, his, his death and coming resurrection, but would use in that Passover meal, the bread and the cup to demonstrate his sacrifice. But I love that he said, my guest room, indicating that Jesus desired to host the disciples. 
Now, we're not sure exactly who this man was carrying the water pitcher, but we know that Jesus brought in others to participate in this presentation. An unknown man with a water pitcher that, that was very obvious for men normally carry the water pictures. So Jesus pointed to something very obvious, designating that that person had been divinely put in place and the room had been divinely prepared. And this, uh, this message Jesus said, tell him, the owner of the house, to have my guest room ready. Jesus was hosting the disciples. They were not hosting him for the Passover meal. Jesus was hosting them that he might present himself in the fullness of his coming sacrifice. And then in verses 22 and following to verse 26, you see the beautiful uh, sacred uh, Seder or the, the, the Lord's meal, the last supper he would have with his disciples. Jesus broke the bread, verse 22, and said, take this as my body. Verse 23, he took the cup and gave thanks. And he said, this is the blood of covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And then Jesus said, I will not drink this again until we drink it in you in my kingdom. Luke chapter 14 uh, recognized the celebration of, of the kingdom in a banquet meal. And here Jesus references that by saying, from this point forward, I'll not drink this again until we're all together and my kingdom has been established for all time. But I, I love the picture of, of the Eucharist, of the Passover meal where Jesus said, my body for you, my blood for you. This fulfilled Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, where Jesus said, I give you a new covenant in my body, in my blood. Luke's gospel actually uses the phrase covenant, in my blood, as Mark does here, to powerfully emphasize that Jesus' body would establish our new covenant, not built upon one's responsiveness to the law or to the ceremonial regulations, but with a relationship directly with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. This becomes the, the presentation. This is Jesus, his body, his blood for us. Oh, I pray that you see his sacrifice and that you are at this moment responding to the plan of God, Jesus as the Lamb of God, to the praise he deserves. Oh, what a beautiful statement that he deserves this, this praise. And then, oh, this powerful presentation of Jesus as the sacrifice that redeems our sin. Now, let's move deeper into the narrative. And we, uh, we return to the narrative in verse 27. And the fifth step, moving episodically through chapter 14 to the cross, demonstrates pride. Now, the word pride does not become used here. The word pride is actually inferred here through the experience of Peter when he refused to believe that he would deny our Lord. And even the other disciples, when Jesus prophesied that they would abandon him, they said, there's no way. Now, this may not be an intentional pride, but nonetheless, they thought more of their commitment to Christ than what they actually had resolved in their hearts. So there was an element of spiritual pride, but when the pressure came, they deserted. You may say, wow, well, who could blame them? But Jesus prophesied this. Listen to these words. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which was set adjacent right across from the city, looking down on the temple. And Jesus said to all of them, you will all fall away because it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus prophesied the disciples would be scattered when he would face his death on the cross. Peter said, even if all fall away, I will not. 
Peter stepped up and said, there's no way I'm leaving you. To counter this, Jesus did not simply affirm that he would scatter, but that he would deny Jesus before a certain time in the evening watch leading up to the rooster's crow. And Jesus said, you will deny me three times. But Peter kept insisting. That becomes the phrase from the Greek that actually gives us the element of pride. This phrase continually insisting, references a word that means to go way beyond what should be expected. Peter elaborated. Peter exaggerated to the point that he could not see in himself the fallacy of his own promise. And so at times there comes this evident pride in us where we think more of our commitment to Jesus than maybe what is actually existing in our hearts. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 let not a man think he is he is standing firm in his heart. Let him take heed that it, when he thinks he's strong, he may actually fall. And Peter demonstrated this overzealousness and pride and the fifth step toward the cross references a pride where we think that we are resolved and we we have no worry of falling away. Jesus said, Peter, you, you, you don't know yourself well. You're not being honest with your own heart. Peter had not yet made that full acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. He had been caught up in the movement, but not in the surrender. Are you caught up in the movement of church life or our devotional expressions, but you've not fully surrendered to Jesus? That can reference this overestimated spiritual commitment that can be translated as pride. Be careful. The fifth step toward the cross demonstrated the pride of those closest to Jesus. Now, after that event, Mark's narrative moves us right into Gethsemane, a beautiful garden uh, near the Mount of Olives where Jesus took Peter, James, and John and left the other eight out on the uh, peripheral of the garden. Judas is obviously no longer in the picture. And Jesus took three of his disciples, the three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration who saw his glory, became the ones accompanying Jesus because our Lord desired that they would also see his agony. Because in his agony in the garden, just as much of his glory was demonstrated, but through a different lens. And yet the disciples missed this. So we, we come to verses 32 through 42 to, to see the scene in Gethsemane. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took James, John, and Peter. Jesus prayed out, my soul is deeply grieved. And then he went a little beyond them and he prayed, Abba, Father, verse 36, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Jesus meaning the cup of suffering that he knew was coming. Jesus could see that cup of suffering, referencing what he would drink, what he would participate in. And that cup was a horrific testimony of suffering. Jesus said genuinely to the Father, may it pass, not to demonstrate that Jesus' heart was vacillating in obedience, but to demonstrate just how horrific the coming suffering would be. Jesus said, may this pass. May it not come to me, but then Jesus said, but not what I will, but God what you will. And then Jesus came from that deep time of prayer and he found the men sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch? For one hour, keep watching and praying that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And then verse 39 and forward, Jesus again retreated and he began praying, came back and said again, are you not still sleeping? Are you still sleeping and resting? And then Jesus said, get up, verse 42. 
Behold, the ones who are betraying me, they're at hand. You see, Jesus came from that prayer in peace. He did not retreat from the garden. He knew the falsified accusations and the, the angry mob were, were pursuing him. And Jesus said, they're here. Let's stand up and be ready for them. This sixth step, the step of prayer, becomes an amazing moment where Jesus demonstrated his agony and his obedience to the Father. And I find it amazing that he demonstrated this prayer before Peter, James, and John. James and John were the one who said to Jesus, we can drink from the same cup as you. They were overestimating their own hearts. Peter was the one that said, I'll not turn away. But all three men, after those grandiose commitments, would, would realize the severity of the moment in Jesus' prayer. And Jesus said, not my will, Father, but yours. Oh, the prayer becomes this sixth step to the cross as we continue to see Jesus' life before our eyes. Oh, I pray that your faith responds to the Christ who loves you, but the Christ who in agony continued in the Father's will that you might be redeemed. Oh, would you see the suffering Christ for who he is as your Savior and as your Lord? The narrative continues to a seventh step, and this is a very lengthy passage encompassing the remainder of the 14th chapter. And I reference this seventh step as the step of proclamation. Oh, there becomes a powerful proclamation. But in order to hear what Jesus will proclaim, which has transformed mankind for all time, we must work through some very dangerous and, and conniving schemes that were brought against Jesus by a group of people defined in verse 43. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. This was an angry mob. And then accompanying them were chief priests and scribes and elders. Those three categories of, of offices in, in, in temple leadership and in Judaistic leadership actually comprised the Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. So the Sanhedrin the representatives from there joined in this angry mob. So notice the, the cowardice mob. They're angry, but notice how cowardice they were coming at night in the stealth of night, breaking the rules of the Sanhedrin who were prohibited to hold trials before sunup. And yet here they are executing arrest. Now they could, they could try they could accuse, they just could not execute the individual. We'll see evidence of this. But take notice of the cowardice mob. But second, take notice of the kiss of betrayal. To, to note Jesus in the dark shadows of Gethsemane, Judas kissed him. And then they seized him, verse 46 and 47. It was not uncommon for a follower to kiss their teacher, their rabbi, on the cheek in a sign of respect. But this was no respect. This was horrific betrayal. And so Jesus was arrested. Jesus said in verse 48, if you come with swords to arrest me as you would a robber, every day I've been with you in the temple, you've not seized me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left and fled. And the, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet. And, and they seized him, but he pulled free and ran. Something that could have been John Mark, our author here. We're not sure. Only Mark includes this story. But nonetheless, the 
the cowardice of the mob becomes demonstrated here. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, verse 53. Now notice not only the cowardice mob and the kiss of betrayal, but notice the judicial farce. Laws were being broken. There were two trials. There was a religious trial and a civil trial. And there were three stages of these trials, all involving rules that were being broken and false testimonies, fabrications brought against Jesus. We fast forward to the proclamation. And here it is in verse 61. Jesus kept silent and they kept asking him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said in verse 62, I am. Oh, I believe with all my heart, this becomes a resonation with Exodus chapter three, verse 14, where God spoke to Moses and God himself said, I am that I am. Jesus said, I am, and I believe with as much power as Moses experienced on that hallowed ground when God spoke to him, so the same power became demonstrated here. And then Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. I believe he's speaking of his second coming, and this calls the high priest to tear their clothes and to, to scream blasphemy, and they, they hit him with their fist and blindfolded him and they slapped him in his face. From this point on, Jesus' proclamation, I am, became the very words that led systematically through a broken judicial system to his execution. Verses 66 and following, we have a horrific demonstration of Peter denying our Lord. And chapter 14 ends in darkness and sadness. Our Lord led away, but the proclamation was powerful and bold and glorious. As just before his death and for before coming immense suffering and beatings uh, far beyond what he had already received, Jesus proclaimed, I am. And now from chapter 14 to chapter 15, we close by simply looking at the cross. Verses 1 through 15 of chapter 15, the crowd condemned. The Sanhedrin passed Jesus to Pilate that he might execute him because they could not do that in their own legal operation. And Pilate then acquiesced to the crowd and the crowd condemned him. Verse 13, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas, one criminal, for another. And he had Jesus scourged and he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate saw this man as innocent, yet listened to the crowd. The crowd condemned Jesus. Notice how the soldiers mocked him. Verses 16 to verse 21. They mocked him. They, they spat upon him. They kept beating him with reeds. They kept mocking him. This was a horrific scene. Human words cannot even begin to accurately describe. He was unrecognizable as a human, most scholarship would say. And then they led him to the hill of crucifixion. They pressed into service a man by the name of Simon, a Cyrene to help bear his cross. 
and Jesus beaten beyond what we could ever imagine that any human could endure. Fully God, fully man. Jesus could have just pointed and all of his accusers could have just vanished, become annihilated. But Jesus willingly went to the cross. I say to you today, he was not murdered. He was sacrificed because he willingly went to the cross. Verses 22 and following give evidence of the crucifixion. And I fast forward to verse 34 where Jesus Recorded in Mark is making this one statement, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May I take this moment to just read the seven statements that all the gospels bring concerning what Jesus said on the cross? Mark covers one, demonstrating that moment where God had to turn his back on his son. Jesus now crucified to a cross between two thieves. Even here in one thief, a thief ridicule him. And then Jesus speaking redemptively to the other. But in the sixth hour, when darkness fell upon the whole land, Jesus then at the ninth hour said, My God, why have you forsaken me? He was given some drink. He cried out. Verse 39, he breathed his last. Here are the uh, statements Jesus made from the cross, including the one recorded here in Mark. The first statement, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The second, he said to the thief, you'll be with me in paradise. The third, he said to his mother, woman, behold thy son. Fourth, we have it recorded here, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fifth, Jesus said, I thirst. Six, it is finished, tetelesti, it's paid in full. And the final statement, Father, into my, to thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Verse 42. When evening had come, it was the day of preparation. Leading up uh, into the Sabbath day, the next day. This is likely in, in our calendar from Friday to Saturday. And Jesus was laid in a borrowed tomb. The stone was rolled against the tomb. Verse 46. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where Jesus had been laid. It is finished, it is done. His death, horrific suffering, magnified more than we could ever imagine with every blow, with every accusation. And Jesus went to the cross. Do you see the steps to the cross that fully revealed Jesus? He upon the cross suffered and died. Historian Paul Vane who calls himself an unbeliever, actually extols the message of human dignity we find in the sacrificial love and death of Jesus. This proclaimed unbeliever, but historian, writes this about the cross. In the gospel, a person's life suddenly acquires an eternal significance within a cosmic plan, something that no philosophy or paganism could confer. Even the pagan gods themselves lived for their own selves. In contrast, Christ, the God-man, sacrificed himself for those who would trust him and brought dignity and value to every person. And those who trust him can receive the benefit of his death. This is a summary from history. 
indicating that you can't hide, you can't miss the meaning of the death of our Lord, fully God, fully man, dying for us, that we might live. Let's bow for prayer. With your heads bowed right where you're seated, would you just ask God to show you through these words the depth of the love that he has for you? And if you've never asked God through Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into his relationship as father to son, father to daughter, would you would you open your heart to this now? You could even pray a prayer like this. Dear God, I believe in you. I believe you. You allowed Jesus to go to the cross for my sins and he arose again so that I could be saved completely. I receive by faith what you've accomplished in Jesus on the cross and I ask you to forgive me of my sin and give my life to you. Father, I pray that those who are hearing these words will respond to you by faith. And in prayer, we'll trust you and we'll trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Hey, on the website, on the screen right now is the website location. Uh, go to that and, and let's have conversation. And let's respond in our hearts to Jesus, his death on the cross. As we begin Holy Week, we return next Sunday and celebrate his resurrection. Go in peace. And go with your eyes on Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. You can trust him with your life. Love you a lot. God bless.